0: Today, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 3 through 6. In two weeks, we start a new series, but for today and next week, we're going to be looking at some stuff about our vision. We say around here a lot that we are into what's called gospel growth and authentic community. Today, we're going to be talking about the gospel growth part of our vision. Um, what does it mean to grow in the gospel? What does that, what does that look like? That word gospel literally means good news. And what we believe is that when you have faith in Jesus Christ, that you actually become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. That the Holy Spirit now is in your life, and He means for us to grow spiritually in Christ, to become more and more like Jesus. So we're going to be talking about what that looks like, the growth piece, but how we grow most through Living out of the good news of the gospel. So if you've got a Bible, let's turn to Mark chapter 2. If you don't, it's also found in your bulletin this morning. Verses 23 through 3.6. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Lord, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you guys have heard of the author Malcolm Gladwell? He's written a lot of books that are well-known. One's called Tipping Point. Um, He has a new podcast that I really like. It's called Revisionist History. And in that, he recently did a, a podcast where he was discussing the creative process and how creative genius sometimes can happen overnight and at other times takes much a very long long time and he talks about how there's personality caught up in that as well so for example bob dylan wrote many of his most well-known songs songs that many of us like some of you don't but uh, they would be considered classics and that people would call genius and yet he did it literally in a matter of minutes complete songs complete melody all the chord structure everything matter of minutes song complete On the other hand, he talked about how Leonard Cohen, who uh, is also an interesting uh, artist, wrote the song Hallelujah, and it took him over 20 years and iterations to actually be willing to present this song in a public forum and actually sing it in a concert over 20 years. The great song Hallelujah. And it was so bad when he finally actually sang it publicly that he kept working on it. Many other people have worked on it. And you can hardly recognize the the tune that was sung in that first time to the song that we know now because it's had so many covers, the song Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. That one. (laughs) Picasso would finish a painting very quickly. Saison took forever to finish, and he would have rendition after rendition, and it felt like he was never actually finished in his work. He f- found it very difficult to say the work is done. Both types of artists have created amazing work, genius level artistry, and the kind that we would all just, you know, lift up in praises, incredible, except what's interesting is some of these artists have been able to rest in the work and say it's finished, And some of these other artists have found it very, very difficult to let it go and say the work is done. Rest is difficult. And that's what we're talking about today, rest. Spiritual rest. I'm not talking about taking a nap. I'm not talking about, you know, getting a vacation. What I'm talking about is the deep, soulish rest that says in your heart, all is well, even when it's not. Even when the circumstances of your life perhaps are not fantastic, you can say, but it can be a calm storm in here because I know who I am, I know where I stand, and I have a rest that goes much deeper than my circumstances. A soulish rest, a deep rest, a heart rest. It's difficult for many of us, the inner rest of the heart. And in our passage today, what we see is Jesus in a showdown with the Pharisees, who are the antagonist of the gospel stories. They, these are the enemies of Jesus throughout the gospels. They keep looking for ways to try him and test him. We see how religion turns rest into work in this passage while the gospel turns work into rest. And this is what I want us to see today. Resting in Christ leads to greater holiness than the works of religion. Resting in Christ leads to true holiness, leads to greater holiness in your life than do the works of of religion, depending on where your heart is. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, Christianity is a religion. How can you be juxtaposing Christianity and the gospel and religion? Well, yes, religion, of of course, Christianity is a religion. It's one of the world's largest, greatest religions, a belief system. But I'm saying this, that Christianity is actually different from the rest of the world's religions and philosophies because it has a totally different starting point with how to react with good works. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Every world religion, every system or philosophy that talks about karma, being saved, being right with God, being one with the universe, wanting peace, and that kind of thing, all begins with a set of rules and principles, and if you keep them, if you're faithful enough to keep these things, and if you're fully and finally capable of doing it, you can earn salvation, you can gain karma, you can gain rest, you can gain eternal life through the work of the religion, but Christianity is much different. The gospel is this I am saved, therefore I obey. It doesn't begin with I will seek to be uh, received. It begins with acceptance. I am accepted. I am loved in Christ. I am already right with God. Therefore, I obey God. Love him. Serve him. In our passage this morning in Mark 2, verses 27 through 28, Jesus said this The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the seventh day in the Jewish calendar, which for them was Saturday. And the word Sabbath means to cease or to pause. And the very first Sabbath that we see in the Bible is God's Sabbath in Genesis, right? After the six days of creation, God created all things by the power of His his hand and his mouth. He creates all things. And after those six days, he rests from his work and he sabbaths, he ceases. Now, why does he do so? He doesn't do so because he spent all of his energy or that he was tired. Instead, what he's giving us is a pattern, is there is a time to create and work and there is a time to cease. And what I love thinking about is he is the ultimate artist. And in his creation of his artwork, the whole universe, he steps back and he says, it is very, very good. He is not one of these artists that needs to keep working and and never feels like the work is done and can't rest in it and be secure in it. Instead, he ceases from the work. He stops. He looks at what he's created and says, it's beautiful. I love it. It's done. It's finished. He then calls us in his word to rest from our labor. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day it should be a Sabbath for you, not just you, but your whole household, those connected to you. You, your children, your spouse, even your animals in your home should cease from their labors, creating this pattern of rest. Is it a law? It is. It's one of the top 10. It's it's in God's 10 commandments. But is it a law? It's a law, but it's a gift. It's even more than a law. It's a gift to us. It's the one that says, stop working and rest. You think we'd be like, this is the greatest law ever. (laughs) every week we get a vacation to cease from what we do. Instead, we turn it into a work. In this first story, Jesus and his disciples were violating one of the Pharisees' rules, not God's law. They weren't stealing. Instead, they're walking through a a field of grain and they were picking the heads of grain and they were eating. And In Deuteronomy 23, it allowed the people who were poor, hungry, destitute, uh, perhaps sojourning in the land, to take grain or to take some food grapes even from a field and eat them you weren't supposed to harvest the grain that would be work but if you're hungry and you're without food you can eat from the field and the farmers were commanded to make that available as part of their tithe to the poor the disciples who had very little are making themselves available to this grain and they're just they're eating the grain and the pharisees come along and they say we caught you you're eating grain that's work and we've caught you in a trap. The next story, Jesus was at church, the synagogue, the local synagogue. And at church, there's a man with a withered hand. We don't know what that means exactly, except he has some disability. Jesus calls the man to himself to be healed. The man doesn't ask to be healed. Jesus calls him to himself, and he knows what's going on. He knows that the Pharisees are there seeking to judge him, seeking to accuse him, and he does it anyway. And I love this about Jesus. There's so many things I love about Jesus, but one of the things that I love is this, that wherever Christ went, we see the kingdom of God, the foreshadowing of his coming kingdom, breaking out in tangible ways everywhere that Jesus physically goes. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, and we are promised that his kingdom will come, that although he died and rose again, he will come again. And when he comes, he comes to usher in the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, there is no room for men with withered hands or with disease or with mental illness or with uh, every sickness and brokenness that's in the world. There's no room for it. So wherever we see Jesus go physically, what we see is this, the blind see, the deaf hear, those who are destitute have, have something. like the, the kingdom starts being ushered in in tangible ways. Isn't that glorious? So he can't go to church with a man with a withered hand and leave him alone. It's not in Jesus' nature. So he calls the man to himself. And then he looks around at this congregation, and he asks him a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? And notice that he doesn't leave room for doing nothing. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful to save a life or to kill? But he doesn't say, is it lawful to do nothing? Jesus says, something will be done here. Jesus knew they're plotting his demise. They're judging him for healing a man on the Sabbath. But what they failed to see, these Pharisees, because he healed this man right there in church, They are judging him for working on the Sabbath, for healing someone. Now, think about this. They're going, aha, we caught you, man. We got you. Now, think about gathering together. Did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. What did he do? He healed someone. We got him. Now, think about, we are going to crucify you because you made someone well on the Sabbath. How twisted this is. And I want us to see how twisted self-righteousness makes people that when you are building your identity and your faith and your hope around your good works instead of what God has done for you by his grace, this is what necessarily happens to you. You begin to even accuse people for doing such good as healing someone on the Lord's day. Beware of your inner Pharisee. Meanwhile, They fail to see. And this is the problem with being a Pharisee, is that you see everybody else's sin, but you don't see your own. They're accusing him for working on the Sabbath, but they don't see the work that they're doing. They're plotting and working the inner workings of their heart, where they are working to kill a man for doing good on the Sabbath. Think about how twisted that is. Beware of your inner Pharisee. Working to save yourself always turns you into a hypocrite. It has to. You're keeping score. I am doing this to achieve God to accept me. I work, God will has to accept me. And so what you do is you're constantly looking at others in reference to yourself to see if you're doing a better job than them and you have to do a better job than them in order for you to gain the, you know, acceptance. And so you work and you work and you work and it makes you a self-righteous, judgmental person. But Mark 2, in Mark 2, 17, Jesus said this. And if you've been around church much in your life, you've heard this passage, but hear it again. Those who are well have no need of a physician. You self-righteous people, (laughs) he says, you don't need what I have, apparently, because only the sick do. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you want to be in my kingdom, if you want to receive what I have, you have to see first that you are a sinner, and that your righteousness doesn't cut it. Even Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet said, our righteousness is like filthy rags before you, O God. We're in need of your grace. And so what he's saying is this, only the sick will see their need of the great physician. If you're building your inner identity and your morality and your religion and your faith on your works, you'll miss the most glorious gift you can ever receive, which is the gift that Jesus gives us holiness we see here begins with admitting that you are sick and in need of the physician, that you're a sinner. What is true holiness? Class, what is true holiness? If you had to pick one word, it would be love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors, yourself. Love. Paul agreed the greatest of all virtue is love the greatest of these is love. Holiness is love. Now, (laughs) love your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to love your neighbors yourself. If you want to be holy, if you want to keep the law, this is what Jesus said, this is how you fulfill it. The Pharisees among us hear that, and they begin to build systems where they can say, well, okay, I've kept that, but let's define who my neighbor is. I can love my neighbor as myself as long as let's define it. So let's say that everyone that lives within 75 feet of me at my physical home and is just like me and acts just like me, looks like me, believes the same thing, you know, then I can love them as much as I love myself. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, your neighbor is everyone around you. You and I are called to love everyone as much as we love ourselves and to love the Father with our whole heart. The gospel-centered person, the person who's been humbled by Jesus, says, I've never kept that. (laughs) Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's never been a day in my life when I've consistently done that. Love your neighbor as yourself, not just the people that are like me, not just the people that are close to me, but everyone, the whole neighborhood, everyone, and not just the whole neighborhood, my whole county, my whole city, my whole nation, the whole world, love people like I pursue my own love? Yeah, I haven't done that. So what do I do? I look to the one who has done it on my behalf. In John 6, they asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the work of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. It begins by faith in Christ. But then James comes along and tells us rightly and completely rightly that faith without works is dead. And that, you know, if you say you have faith, but you have no works, that's a dead faith. We agree, brother James. That's true. So how do we piece these together? We're called to obey. We're called to have a a faith that actually moves outward towards God and towards other people. If you never move outward towards God or other people, and yet you say you have faith, then what James and John and really the whole Bible would say is that's not a real faith. That's dead faith. But from what place do we obey? What beginning place do we work from and do good? We are called to obey, but we are moving out when we understand the gospel from the place of acceptance already, not in the place of looking for acceptance. Amen? We are doing good, loving God, loving our neighbor from a place of acceptance. Religion turns rest into work, and the gospel turns work into rest. Religion takes even a good gift like the Sabbath and makes it a work and twists it into this self-righteous thing While the gospel takes the work of Jesus Christ and and the attempts that we have in doing good and it rests profoundly. Now, I believe this with my whole heart, intellectually at least. I preach it to you. I talk about it. I, I write about it. I think about it. This is our message. This is our vision we are called to grow into maturity and be like Jesus, but we do so not from a place of earning acceptance, but from the place of already having it in Jesus Christ. We believe that to our core, but I've got to tell you, this is not easy. That there's a battle to do this. For myself very much as well. This is so hard. I recently got an email that I knew wasn't going to be fun. And it wasn't from someone in the church, I'll tell you that. I knew it was going to, it's not going to be a fun email, It was going to hurt. I, I want people to love me just like you. I want a good reputation. I, I you know, I, I have the same issues of acceptance that you have. And here came this email. Finally, I knew it was coming. So before I opened it, I said out loud to myself, because I'm weird like that. <laughs> okay, I have to coach myself, right? So here's this email. Okay, what am I going to do? Well, I have Christ's approval, so I don't need this person's approval. I said that out loud. <laughs> I don't have to, you know, I want this person's approval. I want their acceptance. I would like for them to think good things about me, but if, if in the content of this email they don't, I will be okay because this person isn't my Lord. My Lord is Christ, and my, Christ, my Lord says that I can rest Because his work is full and complete in him. You tracking with me? I know this sounds crazy for someone to talk out loud like this, but this is sometimes what I got to do to fight to believe this. Because if you think this is easy and that pastors and priests and and religious leaders, that kind of thing, just do this easily, it's not. It's not true. The battle begins in the mundane of everyday life. So I said, said that kind of thing out loud. And then I opened up the content of the email and it got even more difficult because now I know what's being said and everything in me wanted to justify myself, defend myself, state my case, say why I'm right, but then I have to battle through and say, will I be okay with being misunderstood or do I have to defend myself? And I often blow it, but in this instance, I was able to battle through and say, I don't need this acceptance, I have the acceptance of Christ and this is hard, this is really hard, but I'm gonna live in that Instead of the other. Tonight, when I go to bed, I'm not gonna stay up all night worrying about what somebody thinks about me. I'm gonna rest in the fact that I'm accepted by the one whose acceptance matters the most. Amen? That doesn't mean that I'm all right, also. I'm not. Now, what about you? All of us get emails that are hard to read, all of us get told things that are difficult to hear, they attack our character. And sometimes they're right even, okay? Sometimes the things people tell us are dead on, but it's still very difficult to hear. And sometimes it's even harder though when you receive something like that and you know it's not right or it's only partially right. And it feels like an injustice. What do you do? What would true holiness look like in those moments? Powering up, letting the other person have it, defending yourself completely, Going to war. The answer is found much more in humility, and you can't achieve that until you have found your rest in Jesus Christ and who He is for you. I want people's approval. I every time I preach, I want your approval. I don't want people walking out of here going, "That guy can't preach," <laughs> you know. Like I want you to walk out of here going, "That was fantastic." But if you're my main audience, I can't do my job. I have to be somewhat released from what you think about me, or I can't say hard things to you. I can only tell you things you want to hear. It's this weird thing. How do you get that? From the acceptance that you have in Jesus Christ. How do you say difficult things to somebody else? How do you receive difficult things from somebody? Because you're already accepted in Jesus. When we rest in Jesus, we don't have to fill in the gaps anymore that exist between our righteousness or lack thereof, and the righteousness that God requires, which is complete holiness. Why? Because Jesus has covered it. There is an enormous gulf, there's an enormous gap between where you stand, your good deeds and your righteousness, and the righteousness that God requires. It's, it's in... It's an infinite gap and distance. And the only way that bridge can be met is the righteousness of Christ. He lived his perfect life on your behalf. It's there. By faith, you have it. The gap is complete. It's filled up. We walk around as if we've got a little tiny cross in our pocket that says, yeah, I'm mainly a good person, but I have Jesus's forgiveness. (laughs) But it's really not that big of a deal. I mainly am resting in how good I am, but I've also got Jesus to fill in the little tiny gap but the gap that exists between you and God is eternal. It's enormous. It's an infinite gap. And Jesus has covered it by his righteousness, which means the cross is an infinitely huge cross that has covered the distance. But do you see that it's covered? It's covered. It's covered. You don't have to defend yourself to everyone because you already have Jesus Christ's acceptance completely, fully, and finally. Don't let that be licensed to be a jerk to everyone, but instead say, look, this should create humility in me. This can free me to love people and to love God without fear of rejection because I have his acceptance. When we rest in Jesus, we don't have to judge people anymore. That's good news. How freeing would it be to get that off your back? <laughs> I don't have to, it's fun, but I don't have to judge people anymore. (laughs) You enjoy it, come on. Every time we roll our eyes, make fun of someone, did you see what she just did? (laughs) you know, like, come on, you do it because you think it's fun. We get some sick satisfaction from it. But there's no holiness in that. There's no goodness in that. That's what self-righteousness creates. I have to keep judging you because I have to feel better about myself in light of you. But when Jesus has covered the infinite distance with his righteousness on my behalf, I don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because it's settled. Now, now hear me. Do you see how that creates true holiness? Amen? If I don't have to judge you anymore, well, now I can love you in spite of the distances between us or the difficulty because I don't have to judge you. That's between you and God. I just have to find ways to love you. That's true holiness. I don't have to fill in the gaps with my self-righteous. I don't have to be your judge and jury. I don't have to make myself feel better about you because I have the acceptance of Jesus Christ already. Are you tracking with me, church? Are you with me? All right, because this is our vision, okay? We say we're all about gospel growth and authentic community. You can't be an authentic community but without this in your life. How can you break into small groups, meet one another, have lunch with one another, encourage one another, prefer one another, love one another, forgive one another, all the one another's in the Bible, if you don't rest in the acceptance of God, you can't. You don't have the resource. You have to live out of the gospel to actually experience growth change, transformation, holiness. It's through the posture of acceptance that true humility is created. The Pharisees took a gift from God the Sabbath day, and they made it into a work. It's the strangest thing, but this is what Pharisees do. The work of self-righteousness and the judgmental heart. Now, And what other ways does this look like? How does this get worked out practically? Well, you're you're commanded not to lie. Did you know that? And if you want to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you shouldn't be a person of the lie. You shouldn't. Faith without works is dead. Church, we can't be people that lie. That can't define us. That can't be what we're about. We have to be, be people that walk in the truth. This is what we're called to. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me into the truth. Well, how do we get over the lying then? It's right here. Because, look, the way of religion says, well, I don't lie. I'm a good person. Bad people lie. I can't admit that I'm a liar because I'm trying to earn my salvation. I don't start in a place of acceptance, so I can't really own the fact that I still lie. So let's define what a lie is. And I don't think in this instance I actually lied, right? This is what it does to you you have to recreate definitions you have to create terminology that means like well i'm actually keeping the law even though it doesn't look like i am but then here's what i see in the church often particularly our kind of church is the way of license grace abuse ah eh, jesus forgave me i'm a liar who cares i'm going to heaven <laughs> but hear james you know hear paul second corinthians 5:17 if anyone is in christ he's a new creation New creations can't be like, yeah, it's cool if I lie. I can be a person of the lie. Satan is the father of lies. Our father is the father of truth. We can't be about lying, right? So that can't be okay. But what's the way of the gospel? The way of the gospel says this, God calls me not to lie because when I lie, I'm not loving my neighbors myself, and I'm certainly not loving my father with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that can't define me. That can't be in my life as a thing I'm okay with. But then how do I get the resource to quit lying, Can you admit that you lie? Shade the truth, tell half truth. I mean, we lie, people, so why do we do that? I found, as I've really thought about it in my own heart, when I tell half truths or don't wanna tell the whole truth, it's because of acceptance, usually, often. I want someone to accept me, and if I tell them the truth, they might reject me. So I wanna say, well, Let me tell you a story that's partially true that will help you like me a little more. You know what I'm saying? Or no, just flat out lie because the truth will mean you'll think differently about me and I need your acceptance. Back to our original point. How is true holiness created? If you start from the place of I'm already fully and finally accepted because of the righteousness of Christ and my faith in Him, well now I don't have to have your acceptance so I can admit that was a lie what would that do for your marriage if you could start owning things like that you know what that was actually a bald faced lie oh and you know what i know christ forgave me i hope you can too please forgive me honey oh well now what where do i go with that well you're a liar no Think about how freeing that is to say, no, that was a lie. I don't have to do a half-truth. I don't have to tell you some crazy story. This is just, in that moment, I wanted your acceptance more than I wanted the right, you know, to please God, and so I lied to you. That was wrong. This was horrible. This is the truth. Think about how freeing that would be, how awesome that would be in your marriage, in your friendships, in your parenting, if you were just honest about your heart like that because you understand where your acceptance is. Jesus Christ never lied. Never. He never once told a half-truth or a lie. He always loved the Father so completely and loved his neighbors himself that he never lied. And he lived that life for you, that you may be accepted. You have lied and I have lied, and the lies that we've told deserves death. But guess what? The, The news is so incredible. Jesus not only never lied, he then died for liars so that all of our lies were placed on him, so that on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of the lies of of all of us were placed on him so that it's gone, it's done, it's dissipated, it's completely taken care of. Amen? So liars are free, liars like you and me. Free to not only admit it, but empowered by the same Holy Spirit that roved Jesus from the dead to quit being people of the lie. The Spirit causes us to seek him, to love him, to pursue holiness. Are you turning, church, to Jesus as your work and your rest? Are you living like a Pharisee that just keeps taking all the rest that God's given and created it into a work? Rest in him. Are you restless? Do you keep trying to earn rest in all these other ways through relationships or your work if I work hard enough, people will accept me. If I, if I b- do the right things long enough, people will accept me. If I make enough money, somebody's going to finally say, good job. If I have that car, that house, that wife, that husband, whatever, those kids, the beha- kids that behave, kids with good grades, kids that do everything right according to the mommy blogs, then somebody will say, good job. Don't you see that acceptance never comes? It never, ever comes. But the one for whom all acceptance, the one that matters the most, his acceptance, you have it. You have it. There's a great hymn called Jesus I Am Resting and it says this, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I'm finding out the greatness of your loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee and thy beauty fills my soul for by thy transforming power Thou has made me whole. Church, let's rest. Let's pray. Father, may we rest in the joy of who you are, in the joy of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, your Son. Your loving heart towards us, in spite of our sin, you sent your Son to live and die for us, and to rise again. And then you have given us your Holy Spirit, empowering us, strengthening us to walk with you, pursue you. And yet there are so many ways that we keep walking in the dark instead of the light. So help us to own that, to to start from a place of acceptance and to say, yes, this is true of me, and yet I know that you're calling me out of it. Empower us, Father, by your Holy Spirit to walk in the light, not as the self-righteous, but by the humbled, the humbled people of the good news of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.